Stories connect us as humans. A well-told story can motivate and inspire us. Storytelling is the ultimate superpower. Be The Drop is a weekly podcast that investigates how to tell stories that engage. Join me, Amelia Veal, on our shared journey to become better storytellers. In episode 214, diversity and inclusion consultant Dr. Bree Gorman discusses how to achieve diversity in the workplace. We look at the challenges that still exist in this space and Bree shares her top tips for businesses to turn good intentions into sustainable organisational change. This is Bree's version of Be The Drop. Are you starting a podcast? Narrative Marketing delivers a full range of podcast production and training options. Visit narrativemarketing.com.au or hit the link in the show notes for more details. Brie, thank you so much for joining me for our next episode of Be The Drop. Thank you for having me. So I'm really looking forward to diving into conversations about diversity inclusion, a topic that I'm really passionate about. But to get us started, to understand a little bit about Brie and what makes you tick, could you explain an item of significance for us that can be anything that's representative of the journey you've been on? Yeah, for sure. And for me, it's not even a second thought. For me, it's a cricket bat that I was given... When I was eight years old, and at the time I, I was really good at primary school at cricket and I absolutely loved it. At the time I was incredibly excited to receive that bat and it had Mark Orr's signature on it and he was my idol. But the unfortunate case is that I didn't actually get to use that in a real game till I was 20. It was just such, uh, to me, it just has such significance because of the exclusion that was provided to me of how I really wanted to be myself and and now how much cricket means to me and still means to me now as as a 40-year-old. And, you know, so many layers in that story because the excitement of you as an eight-year-old girl getting that cricket bat, but at a time where girls weren't allowed to play cricket, you know, and as I said, that's something that I'm really passionate about, trying to understand and unpick um, why we would have barriers based on gender. And that's obviously something that you're really passionate about. And now, you know, it's your business. Yeah. And it's been a long, you know, a long journey of, of different careers to get to this point. But you know, I do reflect back on that and certainly my child being not only a girl but being clearly gender diverse, which is the language you would use now, but at the time, you know, I was a tomboy, eventually moving into science and being a woman in science and the barriers that came with that but also the opportunities that, that were there for the taking um, that for various reasons didn't end up eventuating for me um, and that it was about gender, the structure that exists there that really doesn't, that still doesn't work for women. Um, but not just for women, it doesn't work for men either who want to be involved parents. It doesn't work for people who are gender diverse. A hundred percent. And, you know, through Transcending the Gender Narrative, the documentary that we worked on, that was a common conversation. So what does diversity inclusion, like what would that look like? How do you see that playing out? Utopia is that we don't lose talent, that regardless of what form talent is in it's we make the most of that talent and I see that as just such an so incredibly important for this country and for the world that we find the best talent from early ages we nurture them to be the best to really be able to follow their strengths and their passion because that's what we know creates you know the best outcomes and that the other things don't 
keep getting in the way. So whether they are culturally diverse, whether they have a disability, that those things, those barriers are just smashed down and we can really capitalise and benefit off the talent of those people and not to use them but to put them in a place where they can be their best, get the most satisfaction, contribute to society more than what we're seeing currently because currently we're seeing a small portion of society get to do that. Mm. And Yes, and I think, you know, that being heard and being included, giving opportunity for voice of minority groups is a key part of how we're going to bring that diversity to the table and, and really release some of that talent, as you mentioned. So through your business you work with um different workplaces and you go through looking at how they might improve um, diversity and inclusion. What are some of the key elements that you see, like maybe some of the most common barriers that they have or some of the things that they can do to make improvements? I think unfortunately still a lot of the, so for the organisations that are already doing diversity and inclusion work, unfortunately a lot of that work is still focused on fixing the other. So it's still almost entirely centred on how we build the confidence of the women, um, how we help people who are culturally diverse assimilate. But, you know, they're not the words they're using, but that's the the outcome of the types of initiatives that are being used. I think it's still being approached in the wrong way. So an example would be, you know, an organisation comes, they go, yep, we, we need more women in leadership roles. What will we do? Well, women really want mentors. Let's start a mentoring program. I have real concerns about that because everybody should have a mentor. That's that's not a diversity and inclusion issue. That's a professional development issue. Everybody should have access to mentors. But by making that a diversity and inclusion issue, what you're saying is the women don't have the skills or the capacity yet to lead and we have to teach them that. And then once we teach them that, they'll just naturally get those roles. They'll, they'll become leaders. And that doesn't at all address the systemic issues that are preventing women from getting into those roles or people who are of different genders or or different diversity backgrounds. And so it's that I still see that is just, it really irritates me, not because mentorship programs or women in leadership programs are a bad thing to do. They're an okay thing to do. Um, You know, there's lots of evidence to show that they can be quite successful, but they're individual. They're not addressing the systemic issues that are there. So an example I like to use is I was working with one particular um, department at a university. They had interviewed and um, done some consultation with the junior to mid-career academics, um, women who predominantly all had young children and caring responsibilities, and they asked them, you know, what they needed. And they said that, you know, they need to get the confidence to go through the promotion process and they needed mentors and all the rest of it. And the group then presented that to me and said, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to create this leadership program. But the problem is the women that that ask are, are inherent in that system themselves. They believe it is their fault that they haven't yet got a promotion or that it's, it's harder for them to be able to work their way up that ladder. And so we asked them a few other questions. Why haven't you gone for promotion? Because they said they needed help going for promotion, but they hadn't actually even tried. And when we asked them why not, it was things like that the leadership roles that they would be getting into seemed unattainable for them. They were going to wait until their children were older. They didn't think that they had the right number of publications or grants that would be required to get them that promotion. And so then we kind of flipped it around and said, well, how do we make it attractive for them to apply? 
rather than how do we fix them, how do we change the thing that they're applying to so that that thing shows that they're welcome and that their expertise and skills would be valued. And so we started to highlight the fact that there would be flexibility in those senior roles, that if you, were, if you applied and were successful to get one of those senior roles, you wouldn't have to work 80 hours a week that maybe we would provide some support in terms of a, a couple of hours of admin assistance or whatever it might be. So we changed, we looked at how we changed the system so that those roles are attainable and achievable for everybody. And when you see that, and when you see that in, in practice and in action, you see, you know, the organisations get so much value from those people taking up those leadership roles and the fact that everybody feels better, that there's more flexibility and that the system has changed. And it's so interesting to me because there's so much more research and information coming out that demonstrates that diversity actually directly impacts profitability within businesses and diversity being age, culture, gender, you know, the whole range of diversity. Then it's around how do we explain that? How do we give a language and words around so that that makes it accessible for organisations to understand? For me, firstly, it's about understanding that diversity and inclusion needs to be specific to their organisation. So understand their own data, both the numbers that exist in terms of diversity demographics, but also generally they've got to collect that data because they don't. Then the actual qualitative data, so understanding what the experiences are of people. And then you can start to form some kind of action plan that would really, that goes below the surface, that doesn't just pull out that that confidence issue or, um, you know, we, we appoint the best person for the job type thing. Um, you can really start to highlight, well, here's, here's where your problem is. So an example would be for a, one particular organisation, we noticed that their, their issue with getting people into leadership roles was not about promotion. So they thought that people from diverse backgrounds weren't going for promotion. Turns out they, they were and they were quite successful when they did. But it was the recruitment piece that they were having issues. They were recruiting only white male leaders in. And so then we had to drill in further. Well, what part of your recruitment process is, is causing this issue? You know, you've made it public that you want women, you want women to apply. Why are you seeing um, only men get through to the end? And their answer to me would be, well, women don't apply. And when we look at the data, we actually saw in that case, women were applying. They weren't applying at the same rate as men, but they were certainly still applying. And what they weren't doing, though, is they weren't getting through that recruitment process. And so we looked even closer and saw at what point are they getting kicked out, and it was at the shortlisting process. So before it even made, they even made it to the hiring manager to assess their CVs, they were getting excluded out. And so there was bias at play in that shortlisting process, which was being done by one junior um, talent acquisition person, HR person. And so that's kind of the process that I go through with an organisation is, is using the data and the ex lived experience to really nut in and find out where it is, what point is that issue occurring and how can you then adjust that? And that was a simple adjustment, right. you know. In their case, it was, right, we're going to have balanced shortlisting. So we're going to tell that talent acquisition person that they have to get me a balanced shortlist for interview and all of a sudden things started shifting dramatically. Mm. So, and it is about then drilling down, looking at the specifics and, you know, thinking about the construction industry and I do a bit of work in there and, and we looked at that within the documentary series and, you know, one of the companies 
Sarah Constructions that I was working with was like, we're just we're not getting women applying as much. But he was going to university and talking to them, but then realized that at university level it was still predominantly male. So then going to high school and even at high school level, girls by high school were like, oh no, girls don't do construction. And so then he's going and now speaking with primary schools because he realized he had to keep going really far back. And so that solution, it's fantastic. But obviously if he's speaking to primary school kids, it's going to be a while before they filter through the funnel. I think that works so incredibly valuable going back because that's where we see gender is most prolific. The gender segregation is most prolific in primary schools. There's no doubt about that, um, that that's where it all starts. But there are also some innovative, unique things that you can do with higher age groups to try and and start getting people to engage with those types of roles. And I think you really need to take that holistic approach to to tackle um, at all the little touch points to try and really shift and get people to come into your organisation. And so if you had to sort of summarise some tips for businesses to turn good intentions, because I think we're seeing a lot more good intentions around diversity and inclusion, businesses are talking about it, but how do they turn that into good intention into actual changes? One of the things that I'm always harping on about is just transparency and accountability. Stop treating diversity and inclusion as this side fluffy thing for the diversity and inclusion manager to do. It has to be woven into every business process in an organisation to affect change. So your, your marketing people, your IT staff, your cleaners, everybody needs to understand inclusion. And they need to understand what it means to be an inclusive leader because decisions are being made that are excluding people across every part of an organisation. Um, so my biggest tip is making sure that there's that there's education through the organisation, but there's accountability and transparency around that. So, for example, you know, the marketing staff need to have some KPIs around how people from diverse backgrounds are engaging with their material. You have to track that data or you don't know. So having that accountability that, that flows itself all the way up the chain to leadership, but also all the way down. So it's not a KPI that just sits within an exec member. It's actually something that, that filters its way all the way down the organisation. Um, so that's, you know, what I think is one of the biggest tips. And the other, and, you know, talking around narrative and storytelling, it's actually ensuring that your leaders have the skills to provide space for conversations because we need to understand a person's lived experience to understand and recognise the barriers they may face in the workplace. And then as the inclusive leader, as the manager, you can then go and predict those barriers. You can work to break down those barriers and really be an ally and an advocate for that staff member. So, yeah, I think organisations need to spend more time with their staff, with them, particularly their, their direct line managers, as to how they hold those conversations and how they um, understand what their responsibility is to create opportunities for all their staff, not just the, the typical mould of, of a leader. Mm, and I like that, become an ally and an advocate. And what I've seen is that there's a fear of saying the wrong thing or, you know, people who have good intentions and want to, but to like, oh, I'm not actually sure how I'm supposed to say that or do that. So then instead do nothing. <laughs> exactly. And I see that people who enrol in my course do it specifically for that. And I had one person just recently say, I just want to know what to say at the barbecue. 
when my friends are, are saying stuff that's really not okay and, and is diminishing the role of women in the workplace or or it's um, homophobic and I want to know how to stand up and, and say something in those situations and you're so right. It's, it's mostly not that people don't believe that something bad has been said or that it's not their place. It's just that they, they don't have the confidence to speak up. And they don't necessarily want it to be a confrontation but they want to be able to articulate, hey, not so cool, don't appreciate that, not the right place or, or whatever it is, the language that needs to be used. Yeah, exactly, and that's about education. You can't and, and practice and being an ally and particularly being an active bystander, you know, it's still my heart still beats fast and I and I do this all the time and, it, you know, the words sometimes catch in the back of my throat. Um, it's hard work. It's not easy but it is so valuable and if you recognise that you have power in a conversation and a situation, you know, you have carried the benefits of privilege all your life, it's, it's time for you to step up and have a go even if um, it doesn't land 100% correct and if you've got to try better next time. But there's nothing you can do but keep practising. Fantastic. And it's interesting there that the word privilege as well, and I think that's been a big part of my learning and education journey process is understanding my own privilege and recognising that. And it's not about feeling guilty about it. You know, I'm incredibly lucky and that's okay. Um, but and, and being okay with my privilege because there was periods of time where I felt guilt associated with that. So it's about being okay with it but then going, okay, so so how do I use it? What do I do with it? I've got a superpower here. What can I do to help others? And, and you've nailed it there. It is a superpower. It's And how you use that power can be so powerful. And quite often I still get perhaps not guilt but it's a sense of particularly when I talk out on issues around cultural diversity. So it's a tricky space to be in but it, there's an author who describes it as a weightless knapsack that you're given at birth, you carry around with you for life, and it continues to keep giving. And the fact is we're perpetuating the systems that are continuing to benefit us. And so it is our responsibility to start using that to break those systems down. Yeah. Well, Bree, thank you so much. In conclusion, though, could you share with me your top tip for communication that motivates and inspires? So that's your be the drop tip. For me, it's, it's bringing your whole self to a conversation um, and being authentically yourself. You know, I often am sharing my story, but it doesn't have to be a story of, you know, of marginalisation or discrimination to make people kind of come along the path with you. It just needs to be your story and, and what you're bringing, putting yourself into a conversation, into a discussion, into this work, whether it's diversity and inclusion or whatever it is, just put yourself in there because life's too short not to and we don't need to keep all these walls and barriers up. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Be The Drop. Don't forget to subscribe in order to ensure you never miss out on one of our weekly episodes. Be The Drop is produced by Narrative Marketing, where we believe that stories connect individuals and that powerful storytelling can positively impact the world. To unleash your storytelling superpower, visit narrativemarketing.com.au or check out our social links in the show notes. To contact me directly with any specific comments you have, you can email me via amelia at narrativemarketing.com.au. And don't forget that whilst a task or challenge may seem overwhelming, a waterfall begins with one drop and look what comes from that.
This is a Narrative Network podcast.